So what the fuck am I here? I even asked to come back. I got the will by the balls and I can't stop feeling like I'm a fucking loser. Who makes you feel like a loser? Your mother? Oh, please. We wasted enough oxygen on that one. Welcome to a bed with Stan. Episode 50. Welcome everyone to a calming and healing episode of A Bed with Steph, episode 50. I'm here with Amanda. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Steve. <laughs> oh, this is a different vibe. I love it. <laughs> so, Amanda, who are you? <laughs> who am I or what do I do? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> what sort of question is that to ask a therapist? <laughs> I am uh, a husband. No, I'm not a husband. I'm the wife of a husband. I'm the mom of two kids. I am a social worker and a therapist, um, and a teacher, and a all sorts of things. Great. Well, that's loads. What's your title? Would you say, in an anonymous well, way? i i see myself with two roles i work at a hospital doing palliative care social work and i also am a therapist who works in private practice and what made you decide to do that what's your kind of journey with it well i've i've always known that i wanted to be a therapist of some sort I, i left college having been a psych major and wasn't quite ready to go get a master's yet and asked around and um, heard from several people who had gotten um, different degrees that they wish they had gotten a social work degree. So I went back to school for social work. And on the first day, they had a panel of people who were speaking about what they'd done with their social work degrees. And one of them talked about practicing with in cancer and oncology and uh, just kind of said, you know, cancer cuts out the bullshit and you can spend, you know, several therapy sessions kind of digging deep down into things that are happening with people. But, you know, you get into a world of cancer and it just, you kind of cut out some of that, that bullshit and you get right down to really, really deep, important work pretty quickly um, because people are dealing with an illness that, you know, can be scary and can bring up a lot. And so, quite quickly you are in really intense work with people in a different way than you are when you're doing the kind of 50 minute hour in a therapist's office. So did you not feel any hesitation about tackling that going straight to the deep end? Are you the sort of person that does that? That's what I wanted yeah. Yeah so if you go for a curry or something you would just in order a vindaloo or You would order like I wouldn't a double. Say in all aspects of my life, but I can I can handle a fair amount of emotional depth pretty quickly, and that's you know that's why I'm in the profession I'm in because I actually struggle sometimes with small talk, 
it seems it, it's a little harder for me to do. Like I, I'd rather know who people are. Okay. That's a scary thing to hear. <laughs> I was going to ask you like, what's your favorite sandwich next? Um, <laughs> I mean, I can try to answer those kinds of questions. I'm not opposed to them. I, but you know, I have a good chemistry with you, especially it's probably because you're a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. But uh, you, yeah, you, people don't know where it comes from. I mean, is it to do with upbringing or surroundings or something? I don't want to get too personal, but um, you don't know. Yeah. People don't know why they're how they are. I think we have some good guesses as to why we are how we are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think as with anything, you bring both your personal history and your upbringing and also you overlay training on top of that. But I think, I think the personality that I bring is one that I, I've had since a very young, young age. And then, yeah, you overlay training on that. How much training do you have to do to be a therapist in America for this type of thing? Well, there are different amounts of training depending on what kind of license you're going for. Um, In social work, you have two years of school and then you have many hours of uh, kind of supervised work that you need to get done before you can get the next level of licensure. So I have the highest level of licensure you can have as a social worker. Um, and that required, you know, a certain number of supervised hours after post degree. So did you have any doubt about your training when you were doing it? Becoming a therapist, was there any like, Oh, I'd rather be, you know, an onion saleswoman or, you know, I'd rather work for the, you know, the government or something, or I'd rather never had that be a, a social media manager, not, no, I suppose not in 2006 I, or whatever. I think my, uh, my wishes are, are simpler than that. I think, you know, there are times where it can be a lot of death or it can be a lot of intensity and it didn't come before like early on in my training, it's more like, you know, it ebbs and flows as I'm over a decade into doing the work that I've done. There are times where the intensity gets to be a lot. And there are times where I wish I could just, you know, go work with spreadsheets or open a craft store or something that doesn't involve the kind of depths of, of human suffering. (laughs) Um, And so there, there are times where I wish for something simpler, but very rarely do I wish for a different, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I still really love my career. I'm glad that I've chosen the career that I have. Mm. How do you deal with too much emotion then, too much of it? What do you do? Well, um, at times music has definitely been an outlet. Writing is, is an outlet for me a lot. Like when I, when I become really overwhelmed, um, sometimes I just need to journal for a while about what it feels like and where the suffering is and kind of what lessons it teaches me about life and just kind of not only get it out, but also kind of make some meaning of it all. Um, And my kids and my husband, my husband, you know, early on when I was doing the work, there was a degree of sadness in doing the work that was (laughs) maybe I've become hardened over time. I don't know, but you know, the things that make me sad now are very different than made me sad, you know, 12 years ago. Um, and he was really good at just um, kind of being with me in a moment of sadness and just, you know, uh, giving me love and just, you know, putting his arm around me and hugging me and just uh, sitting with me in a moment of grief. And since those days, you know, my kids are a really good source of balance because they're so in the now and they are just so, you know, 
here's what I need. Come be with me. Come do what yeah. I want to do. It's primal, and isn't it? And it's, it's kind it of is. just a reality yeah. check of different kind. So yeah. you actually speak to your husband about it. No, no, no. I, I actually don't. I don't talk to him about the majority of what I experience. I will reflect with him that it was a hard day or there was a young loss or there was, you know, I, I'll kind of give an outline of something, but I don't tell him a lot of specifics, partly because it's not my story to tell in certain ways. And also because, you know, he's he's not somebody who chose to go into this profession and mm-hmm. I don't think it's always healthy to come home and debrief with a partner who hasn't chosen the work you've chosen. And so I, I have professional ways of debriefing and I have personal ways of debriefing, but um, it's not, it's not what he chose. Mm. I don't, I don't give him gory details. There's no, I don't find that helpful for either of us. And do you become not immune or insensitive but do you become used to grief over and over again with people that you're speaking to like I remember in the Sopranos there's the character who's in like confinement Uncle Junior I don't know if you've seen the Sopranos and he can only get let out to go to funerals so that's his only social interaction so he goes to about 20 funerals in a month and then with that as a weird example when you have it over and over again, does it make it more easy to deal with or is it still the same? Is grief easier as it happens again and again? Well, I think the difference is these are not my losses. You know, I think, I think it's important to acknowledge that anybody who does this work has some kind of relationship with the people they care for. And so it is a loss of some sort, but it's different than a personal loss. So doing the work means witnessing loss, suffering, grief, and having some measure of it yourself, especially if you've, you know, followed a person for a specific amount of time before they die. Um, you know, we do, we do develop relationships. They're not friendships, they're not family, but there's, you know, there's an attachment there to, to patients. Um, but it is different than a personal loss. And so mm-hmm. I'm not sure that you get used to personal loss um, in quite the same way. Although I, you know, for some people who have experienced multiple personal losses, I'm sure there's a way in which it kind of feels like, here's another, like, this is, this is kind of the story of my life. Um, but as a, as a provider, you know, it's part of what you sign up for and trying to figure out how you manage that. You know, it's not, it's not like a buck up and deal with it kind of thing. It's more of a, you know, if you've chosen this, you have to find a way to make it sustainable. Mm. Yeah. My grief is always, I'm like a self-doubt, self-critical person. So I always um, do that when there's a grief. Oh, I should have said this. Oh, did I do this? Was I harmful to this person? You know, blah, blah, blah. So you don't have that when you don't know the person as well. Cause my experience of grief is that I already at the moment think forward to, Oh, I can't sell these records. These are my dad's records. And in 30 years, I'll feel like this if I've done that, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I even mm-hmm. forward grief think now. So mm-hmm. you don't have that kind of. But that's, that's anxiety. That's not necessarily grief. There's, there's anticipatory grief, but there's anticipatory anxiety too. And so you know, that kind of thing is more about, it's anxiety about grief. Um, and I think yeah. that's something different. I think, I mean, I do, th- I do think you're right in that a lot of people feel really anxious around grief. 
uh, because it's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know how to say the right thing. It's hard to know. It's hard to be in close proximity to grief because um, it can feel really raw. It can feel, you know, it can raise our own kind of questions of mortality or, you know, our own worries about loss. There are just so many reasons why it's a really difficult subject for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, if you're doing the work all the time, of course, there are times where you think, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that or, but that's the kind of stuff that comes up in any workplace. Like, oh, I said the stupid thing to this coworker the other day, you know, like there are times where that happens, you know, it is like any other job. You, you know, you have better days than others. You have some days where you're saying, you know, you wish you hadn't said the thing you said, but I think you do. And you're able to let that go though. I suppose that's where. Yeah compulsive obsessive stuff comes in because that's what I've personally had with actual grief the person's yeah. gone I can't ask them this question I can't check this with them or blah 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 so mm-hmm. I'm wondering as an idea if I was a therapist would I come home and regret that I told this person this doesn't matter or you don't need to think do you know what I mean um yeah again, I mean probably... I think you know it's it's hard because um I'm not really telling people what to do in therapy. It's not, it's not often how, you know, at least how I practice it's, you know, I will often tell people how, what I see people do generally in their circumstances. And I will kind of help them figure out how they want to respond to something. But when I'm getting too prescriptive, um, that's when, that's when I think therapy can be kind of dangerous when you're being prescriptive about how people should do things. Mm. Um, I think, I think it's more helping to uncover kind of what people's worries, fears are and how they want to move forward in their lives um, than saying, here's what you need to do. Um, And so I I don't know. I don't, I don't have as many worries. Well, no, it's, but it's listening in a really active way that like helps to guide the questions that we're asking together you know, and listening for the places where, you know, I'm hearing guilt or shame or doubt or, you know, worry for something. And then like, let's stay with that for a minute. Okay. Tell me more about that. Let's explore that. Where is that coming from? How do we, how do we unpack that? You know, and then a lot of normalizing about people trying to be humans in the world and maybe the way that they're trying to be a human in the world isn't working for them anymore. And so how do we think about a different way for that to, to look? Mm. But it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, if, if I'm prescribing, here's what you need to do. That's therapy. That's not going to work very well. Mm. Well, I suppose anytime I've had therapy that helps me, it's not prescriptive, but it's like sort of saying, yeah, like, you know, asking questions about the way you're thinking about something in order to change the way you're thinking about something. So, yeah, I mean, what's the, I suppose there's no standard I've often found with therapy that the, the patient has to begin and sometimes they don't know where to begin. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, so do you ever have it that people have come in and they don't know how to start? They don't really know how to open up. And do you have anything without being too specific? How do you tackle that when it doesn't get off right and it isn't doing what therapy's supposed to do? I mean, I think there's a, there's a difference between somebody who's not, ready to do therapy, you know, like somebody who's not engaged or wanting to do the work or ready to do the work. There's a difference between that and somebody who wants to do the work. They just don't know how to start. Um, And so, 
you know, that I can work with somebody who wants to do the work and just doesn't know how to start. Then we just, you know, okay, so tell me a little bit about why now, why are you here? What, you know, what, what do you see as the things that need to kind of get worked on in your life? And oftentimes we're helping to peel back layers that, I mean, even the people who think they know why they're there, we're often peeling back layers to things that are, are, I don't know, much more primary than they believe. Like, you know, some people will come in and say like, I'm, I'm here to deal with the loss of a relationship or I'm here, you know, and, and this is kind of toggling back and forth between my hospital work and my private practice work. It's really more my, in my private practice work that we would encounter something that you're talking about. Oh, and so th- there's a financial aspect as well. Cause you know, I've had that as well. I was like, right, how do I use this time in the best way possible? How do I perform in a way that I'm going to sort myself out a bit here and get some learnings and get some growth from it. That's mm-hmm. maybe where my question is coming from. So in America is obviously a different health system and stuff like that. So is there a financial aspect which affects the work? There, there can be uh, some, you know, if people are seeing me through insurance, they may only have a small copay. Um, and depending on whether that's a hardship for people, that could be um, a part of it. Some people are privately paying for therapy. I try to recommend that people go through insurance if they can. So, but you're right. Sometimes there, there are real financial aspects to, to people trying to get the most they can out of therapy. Um Okay. Uh, you know, I, I try to make sure that anybody who's in therapy with me has a sense of like what we're working on, why we're there together, what we're hoping to accomplish. And, you know, my, my goal with people is to try to help them get to a place where they don't need me um, or they don't need me as frequently. And so a lot of the people that I've worked with over, over the years, we try to kind of get to a point where they feel comfortable scaling back to once a month from once a week or just, you know, email me if you need a next session. And I've had a number of people kind of return to me over the years when the next big life event happens um, because they want to, they want to kind of re-engage around some of the work that we've done, um, but not that they, they need it constantly. Um, And so that's, that's my hope is that people can feel comfortable enough after the work that we've done to not need the work or to not need the work kind of as regularly because they've internalized some of the work we've done. Mm. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's play some music for a minute. What's some good therapy music? I listen to Bill Evans in the middle of the night. What's good therapy music for people to just listen to here for a minute? Cause it's quite a heavy subject or it could be the Bugs Bunny theme tune or anything. <laughs> I've never thought about good therapy music for what, for people who are uh, feeling down about listening to the idea of therapy. Well, you know, you said earlier that music and writing stuff down helps you and that helps me as well. And so do you have any, uh, I mean, what sort of music is it for you? So there's um there's a song by the Gabe Dixon band called All Will Be Well that I, I like to listen to um, because there's, there's just something kind of um, comforting about it. And is that a lyrical, what they're saying in the lyrics as well as the music? Yes. Yep. Well, we'll see, won't we? So here they are. day dawns and I am practicing my purpose once again it is fresh and it is fruitful if I win but if I lose ooh, I don't know I'll be tired but I will turn and I will go only guessing till I get there then I'll know oh 
Welcome back. Here with Amanda, tackling some difficult subjects. A first for a bev with Stev. But I think this is information that people would be interested in, don't you think? I imagine. Yeah. This is real content, man. <laughs> this isn't a joke. So I'm going to come to our main question. The main question to this podcast, which is what are people's thoughts? I'll try and keep the question simple. <laughs> How are people at the end of their lives? There's loads of questions here. What are they happy about? What What do they regret? Well, I'll I'll tell you. Most people don't wish they'd worked more. That's yeah. That's not a, a thing. I mean, there there's the are some main people, regret. Well, I, I one of the main regrets, and and this may be a very kind of American specific piece because um, we're not as good at taking time off. We're not as good at. Um, I, you know, I think there are certain cultures where the the work ethic doesn't really promote, you know, a year off backpacking in Europe or whatever, whatever it may be. Um, get on the gravy train, yeah. get on the capitalist uh, American dream. Right. I mean, there's, there's, I think there's a work ethic here where it's kind of like, you know, you work hard until your retirement and that's when you then enjoy life. And, you know, I think that's shifting a little bit for maybe younger generations, but that was a part of the American dream, I think, for a lot of people is you work hard and then you get to enjoy it in retirement. And I, uh, I hear from a lot of people, especially of a certain age, you know, I, I only just retired. We were just about to take the one cruise that we, you know, have looked forward to our whole, our whole marriage or, you know, there, there are a lot of people who, who wish they hadn't left their living until the end um delay your happiness I suppose would be but there's plenty of that here if I had my time again I would do this yeah I think it's a common life experience I think a lot of regrets that people have are about delaying joy in life or delaying you know something that they has really been important to them. There, there are also plenty of people who say, I'm really proud of my life or I'm proud of my family or I'm proud of the things that I've done. Um, so it's not, it's not all regret. I mean, I think a lot of what I do is help kind of illuminate a life review with people. You know, what are the things that they, that they look back on and feel good about? Are there things that they're struggling with? And is there anything we can do with the things they're struggling with to help you know, find some resolution, not in like a Pollyanna kind of, you know, let's make everybody happy before they die kind of way. But um, in a, you know, if there's something on your mind that's weighing you down, is there anything to be done about that? And especially in Boston, it's a very Catholic city. And so for a lot of people, just being able to either have a confession or do a sacrament of the sick, you know, faith, faith is a big part of how people. So they tell you the confession. No, 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 that, that we would, I would have our chaplains, um, uh, you know, 
Okay. I kind of work hand in hand with, I mean, sometimes, yeah, sometimes people do, but. So you've um, heard some fruity content. <laughs> I have. I you can't have. divulge. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, people, people, anything that you can imagine people have, have done or experienced in their lives and are reckoning with that at a time when. And know, I imagine sometimes it's nothing, but it's big in their minds. That's something that's I would do. Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, something needing absolution for something that you sometimes go. Is that it? Is that what you're terrorized by? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Right. Mm. But yes, if it looms large in their world, you know, you treat it just as as you would something kind of more serious or more um, traumatizing. Mm. And so, in general, if that's possible what are the struggles that people come up against? You know, they're doing a life review. Maybe they're quite a logistical person who likes to, you know, trim their garden every week. What is the thing they're coming up against that they they do struggle with and they can't work through as easily as, I've got to wind up my will and my, you know, my house and all that. I mean, a lot of it has to do with relationships. You know, Mm. a lot of it has to do with um, regrets about whether it's estrangements or whether it's, just a relationship having been difficult. Um, some of it may have to do with mother and father. Would it be, or would it be children? Is it that a big one or is yeah, it more marital? Kind of, it's, it's all, all manner of relationships. You know, some people, some people had a falling out with a sibling, some people, you know, grudges. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the whole, it's the whole thing really. And, you know, I think some people struggle with wishing they'd had more purpose in their life, wishing they had more to kind of leave behind, not, not financially, but just kind of wishing they'd made a mark on the world in a different way. Mm. And, you know, and that's not, that's not specific to a certain profession because there are people in all manner of professions who feel really satisfied with the life they've, they've led. You know, I gave a really solid, you know, home from, to my family, you know, it's not profession specific. It's just how people feel about their professions or sit with their kind of their purpose in the world. Um, and some, you know, a lot of times that has to do with work. Sometimes it has to do with, you know, it didn't matter what my work was. I raised these great kids or it didn't matter what my work was. The church group I belonged to, I felt like I really gave there, you know, so it's not always professional, but it's, it's the idea of purpose. And mm. some people struggle with not having had a, a kind of purpose or an impact and without being a parent, I, I, what I notice about parents is that they might feel a bit helpless about leaving their kids behind. That's their main worry. Yeah. Even if their kids are 50. Yes. So is that a big one of yes. parents? That's the main enormous. thing they're worrying about. It's enormous. Yeah. And how do we tackle that? We just listen to the person's because there's no rational answer to that or is there? Or how do you explore that? I mean, it depends. Like if I... In my work, I deal with a lot of young parents and young kids. Um, and so there are there are ways that I can provide kind of, you know, psychoeducation to people about, you know, the things we know about kids and grief, um, you know, and ways to approach conversations with young kids about family illness and loss and, you know, resources and books. And, you know, there are ways to kind of provide guidance. Um, you know, like when I was saying earlier, good therapy shouldn't be about being prescriptive. There is absolutely a role for being able to provide kind of psychoeducation to people about how how to go through something that they've never been through before. And so 
there's a lot of teaching that I do with parents about how to talk to little kids, um, what language to use, how to approach it, how to just things like that. So there's, there are ways that I, I work to support people that way. When it's older parents with older kids, it's harder that way because it becomes more about personality and circumstance and whether it's their kind of financial challenges or whether it's emotional challenges, you know, uh, it's people get extremely emotional with the kids, don't they? So anything, yeah. Yeah. In the session is yeah. All right. So the next little section I have is COVID. (laughs) (laughs) So how are people in the COVID era? How's this era different for a, a therapist? Or have you dealt with people that are going to die with or because of COVID? And how's that mm-hmm. different? You know, it's, it's, that um, question? <laughs> or, I will answer, you know, the I will thing... answer what I think you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is that <laughs> uh, it's, it's more akin to a sudden loss in some ways um, than it, you know, my, my whole job experience is around cancer. And while there are certainly sudden losses from cancer um, or unexpected losses, uh, uh, you have some sense of trajectory at least okay. uh, oftentimes. And COVID is just, you know, they were okay yesterday and, you know, today. Oh, so they have cancer of- and they got COVID and that, yeah. I, I also took care of people who just had COVID. Um, but yeah. so there's there's a suddenness to the the illness that is... Um, really tricky, but I think the thing that's much harder than all of that is that we can't have any of the social rituals that we typically do when there's a loss, whether it's sudden or expected. You know, people can't gather together or can't gather and feel safe. Certainly people are gathering, but the recommendations are that people don't gather. And so oftentimes you have people who are dying in nursing homes or hospitals and can't have their families around them. And then the families can't come together to grieve in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And so all of the rituals that we associate with grief and death and loss um, are just upended during this time. And that's making everything so much harder um, because typically we we have these tried and true ways of coming together as community around loss that we just can't engage in in the same way and people are getting creative but it's it's not the same as being able to you know be in a room full of people who love you and who are kind of hugging you and supporting you you know to be on a zoom call of those same people um you know it it serves its own purpose but it's different yeah okay and so you're operating on zoom at the moment or are you in person america's at a different lockdown stage i suppose um, yeah, I mean, every place is in a different lockdown stage. So like I was at home at times when colleagues of mine at other hospitals were in person. Mm. Um, but I'm now I'm now both in person and doing some things because the, the difficulty is that families still aren't really allowed into the hospital on a regular basis unless it's extreme circumstances. So even if I'm in person, sometimes I'm doing remote work with families who can't be there. Um, so it's it's just everything's a mess. <laughs> yeah. And do you see any hope with the vaccine situation? Do you think it's, how do you feel about the whole COVID situation? At the I moment? mean, yeah, I, I want to see, I want to see hope. I, you know, it's hard to know how these new strains are going to impact things, you know, and it's hard to vaccinate a whole world. And, mm. 
you know, it's hard when there are people who, you know, it would be hard to vaccinate a whole world if everybody was on the same page and all agreed that, you know, this is how we do this. It's that much harder to vaccinate a whole world when, you know, some percentage of those people don't even believe in vaccinations or don't believe that there are ways kind of through this that are science-based and that are... There's an anti-authority feeling in the world. And science has an air of authority to it. So people who want to push back on authority tend to, as a sidebar, push back on science. He's going to lock down. This guy wants to lock down. He'll listen to the scientists. If I listened totally to the scientists, we would right now have a country that would be in a massive depression. Uh, that are worth Is politics to. ever come into your sessions? Do they yes. ask are you what's your political leaning and all that? Have you had that? Because it's so political at the moment, USA. It is. It sure is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, yes, it does come into our sessions. I try, I try with most things to not be super transparent about my life, partly because I want people to feel like they can be themselves without, without having to edit themselves um, and worry about what I think. But I, the majority of people I have have the same political leanings as I do. And I, I try not to have that be something that um, dominates any kind of session, but it's, it's often the kind of in the hello and goodbye, like, okay, fingers crossed for, you know, Oh, okay. that kind of thing. Most Um, interactions are pleasant. Well, Uh, I mean, you know, like, so I, I take care of some health professionals and, you know, there's a lot of anger from health professionals towards people out in the world who are just kind of living their lives normally. And the health professionals are not only giving up things that are really important to them in their lives, but they're seeing the consequences of what happens when people live their lives normally. They're watching people die. And so there's politics that comes into that too. And what it means to be the people taking care of the consequences of people's um, kind of casual approach yeah. to COVID. Well, you've worked so hard. And I know that in the UK, we're as much as British people can be optimistic as a current optimism because, you know, I think half the population have been vaccinated or something. So I don't know if it's going to be around the corner for you guys as well. No, I, I agree. I don't know. I don't know what around the corner means, but I agree that there is light Down at some road. point in the future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any surprising experiences in therapy? I suppose you can't really divulge, but some people survive and you're in touch with them. Or do you only deal with people that are terminal and, you know, it's oh, a no, very I- systematic thing? No, I, I, I take care of people who are curative too, and who are um, going to, or who are going to live a long time with their cancer and they just kind of live with cancer chronically. So I know I take, I take care of people kind of in all, all um, ranges of the, the kind of prognostic spectrum. And then in my, my private practice, I have taken care of people who are sick, or I have taken care of people who have lost loved ones, but I, a lot of people are just kind of, you know, dealing with anxiety and depression. And so I, I see a, a spectrum of people between the hospital and my private practice. Um, right. Definitely there are surprises in both directions. People who you think are going to do well may not. People who you think are not going to do well sometimes do. So yeah, there. you can never kind of think you know exactly how something's going to go because when you do the work long enough, you know that you don't actually, there are no guarantees and you, you know, you can never fully predict how things are going to go. 
and you like some people that you treat and are they friends any of them or I suppose well, you're you not, can't do that. No, yeah. <laughs> there's there's actually a code of ethics that says you're not allowed to have dual relationships with people. Right. So there there are a number of people I take care of that I think, oh, you know, if I had met this person in a different way, we could be friends. Mm. But it's really important to remember that you're not friends because there's power in the relationship you have with people. And yeah, people have got inappropriate with you because they might be a compulsive person and think you have all the answers. We don't have to go into detail, but you've had that and all therapists get that, do they? Or it's quite an interesting avenue of life, isn't it? To yeah. <laughs> some people then think you're the their religion, you're their person with answers or you've had that. Yeah, I mean, I think people have different relationships to a therapist. And for any of us who have ever been in therapy, you often wonder like, what does my therapist think of me? You know, what? <laughs> Right. I mean, it's like, it's a very common thing to wonder. And I think, you know, oftentimes you think about like how much your therapist knows versus how, what, how good your therapist is at kind of tuning into you and guiding you through things. Um, but yeah, it can be really compelling to think like this person knows so much more than I do. And, you know, it's hard as a therapist, you know, you want to, you want to be able to kind of show your flaws a little bit too, and say, you know, their therapists are not invulnerable and they're not all knowing, you know, mm. therapists fuck up too. Can I say mm. that? And so being, a, being transparent about, about that kind of stuff is important too, that it's not, there isn't a Holy grail of how you go through life. There's just a, you know, we're, we're all getting kind of, you know, kicked in different ways at times and it's just figuring out how to, how to live with it, how to sit with it, how to talk about it, how to, how to move past it, even while you carry it with you, you know? Those are the things that, are, you know, it's not like anybody has it all figured out. No, nobody does. Nobody does. And I've got one thing <laughs> to get towards the end of our intense chat. Or is this intense? I don't know. I think it's interesting. How <laughs> fucked up are people? <laughs> so you have an insight. Do you feel like you have a greater insight into life? How's it changed you doing this job? In, in, in that realm of people, you're, you're hearing a lot of problems. What if you, you know? Well, I, the, the thing is, I hear, I hear a lot of the other side of things too. Like, I mean, some, some of the stuff actually that gets to me most is the stuff where there's like real gratitude and appreciation. Like those are the things that sometimes make me cry faster than right. the real like suffering or sorrow. I mean, there are people who are just like, you know, looking at each other just saying like I'm so glad I've had my life with you oh makes me want to ball and what know? happens when you cry and has that happened and how do you stop that yeah I mean I so the advice I always give to my students and to you know people who are doing the work you know with me is it's okay to be human it's okay to show your emotions it's okay to cry you just don't want them to feel like they have to be taking care of you and handing you tissues yeah. um, so you know it's okay to have your eyes well up or to have you know tear run down your face like all of that is okay because we're human beings doing the work it's just you don't want to be sobbing in a corner and having a family member feel like they need to take care of you, like a yeah. patient's family member, you know? And how often have you laughed? Is it a surprising amount? Oh my God, every day. Oh my God. And this is what I'm saying. It's not just all, it's not all the bad stuff. Like every single day, there is a ton of humor. There is a ton of joy. There is a ton of um, meaning making, you know? I mean, there there's good stuff every day. And that's the thing, like, loss isn't just about loss. It's about living. It's about the balance between life and, you know, 
the gravity of things, but in there, there's also real preciousness. There's real joy. There's, you know, there are people kind of trying to live as much as they can. Mm. Uh, yeah, I often have found myself laughing at the end and going, fucking hell, what am I telling jokes for here and all that, you know? But when you've got to that place, maybe you've you've got somewhere useful. Yeah. Is humour a good remedy for a lot of the things? Have you found that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think humour is um, crucial. You know, Not to every family, because there are some families uh, where humor is really not a part of their communication style. And mm. then humor can feel out of place. Like this is, this is the part where you just have to kind of read the room, but there are some families where, you know, there are some families where <laughs> humor is used to deflect and you have to kind of peel under the yes. humor a little bit. See, that's say, very like, British and Irish. All kidding aside. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so some of it is kind of figuring out what the family culture is and, and very gently kind of pressing on the boundaries of it, you know, like, okay, so I know we're joking around. Can we, can we ask, can I ask a serious question for a minute, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but humor all in all, I think is just crucial in order to be able to go through these experiences. And it's certainly crucial as a provider, you know, there's a ton of dark humor that we use all the time and, and just even light humor um, that helps us get through the day. And so it's crucial to doing the work. Yeah. With British people, any amount of sincerity has to be followed by humor. So that's (laughs) interesting that, yeah, deflective humor. But when it is funny, have you ever laughed at the wrong time as well? Um, (laughs) Have you ever seen humor in something which isn't appropriate in a kind of Steve Coogan way? Yes. I mean, I think, I think there's often times and ways in which providers see humor in things that a family member, like a patient or a family member might not. Mm. Um, and so you just try as much as you can to make those observations outside of the room. Yeah. You have like a, like you're in the office, like a kind of yeah. way of seeing something. Yes. It sounds like you're professional and you're able to escape that. Let's have another musical interlude and then we're going to wind up with Amanda live from Cambridge, Massachusetts with an amazing microphone that no one can see. We'll be right back. Ladies and gents, Emily Moment's album, The Party's Over, is out. This is the title track. Check it out. Get the album on Bandcamp. Looking left to right Seems too good to be true This leash was on too tight Okay, so we're in the final section in which I'm just going to ask what's your kind of hopes and aspirations with therapy and all that <laughs> or for yourself you mean with my your, own personal therapy what, your, what, what your, am I working on with my therapist uh I mean well can go divulge that I mean every every therapist nope. has to be in therapy right yeah at some point 
yeah i mean you don't have to say what you're worth what are your aspirations with the job and in your life maybe at this point i mean i think huge question <laughs> i'm not somebody who is really good at seeing things laid out you know years or decades in advance I think that as is that useful mom, to do that? Do you have a five-year plan? Is that nonsense or what is that? In your I, I think that there are some people who are built that way more maybe than I am. I think as with most things in life, it's good to have a balance of things. Like I don't think it's only good to plan five years out because I think you need to kind of live in the moment. But I think when you live in the moment, you're not always you're not always kind of planning in ways that could help you get towards things. Um, and I think I tend to be more of a like, I just want today to feel meaningful. I want today to feel good. And I and part of that is just having kids. And so I think in terms of my aspirations right now, it's just finding the best balance that I can between kind of my work life and my home life. And I have no idea kind of how I'm going to feel or what I'm going to need when my kids get to a point where they need me less. And so, I mean, is some that of my something you're worried about? No, I mean, like, I'm excited to be able to do things like, you know, more music. I'm excited to be able to do things like that. But I'm, I'm so kind of happily, you know, I mean, exhausted, but I'm happily kind of parenting um, that I'm not anxious to get to that next phase necessarily. Uh, but I look forward to the time when, you know, I have more time to do things like read or keep my house clean or do my music you know just that kind of stuff like I'm so what's your music excited. let's hear about that I mean I used to write songs and you know play my piano and sing and record. when's your album coming out <laughs> let's get it out <laughs> I will never have an album come out but like I wrote you know lots of I wrote songs for my kids you know along there along the way and I would love to maybe like put together a recording of some of that stuff and then I'd love to just write and I'd love to get back. I have some friends that I, I sing with uh, sometimes. And so I'd love to get back to singing with them and maybe, you know, rejoin one of the choirs. And, you know, I, I'm excited for stuff like that at a time where there will be more, more time or more balance. But you did sing in a choir for Obama, right? I did. What's it was not the marathon bombing that happened in Boston. Yeah. Um, I sang in a choir and Obama came to speak after the marathon bombing. And my choir was one of the choirs that was tapped to sing at that church at that, at that ceremony. Okay. So that's how, I mean, Obama, you know, I was not chosen to sing for Obama in that way. And it, it was wasn't one-on-one -on -one and, you know, no, no, no. Clothes <laughs> on and everything. Yeah. <laughs> no scandal. Yeah. <laughs> no scandal. Okay. It was a sad, it was a sad reason to be singing for Obama. But of course, I, yeah. I certainly felt privileged to be there. Mm. So the year's 2070. Your children have picked up this podcast, which I hope they do. What's your message to them? We might still be alive. Well, yeah. Well, what's your message in 2070 to your children listening to this? You're 90 or you're not around. What's your message to, is this too heavy? <laughs> um well, well, i suppose this has well, all I, been a message what we've said yes if your kids ever true. listen i think that's true yeah, exactly I mean, I, much amanda i hope, oh, I hope there's I hope there's an earth left for them by then yeah. you know i i think a lot about that um right you know i think they're gonna have bigger issues to deal with climate related issues to deal with but i i hope for them the same thing i hope for you know 
most people, which is that they find things that are important to them in their lives and they do those things and that they have some balance and that they have good people in their lives to love them and that they, they pursue the things that matter to them, whether that's family, whether that's career, whether that's, you know, whatever, whatever it may be for them. Those are the only, those, that's what I hope for them. I just hope they have a reasonable world to live in. Mm. Do you think kindness and compassion can come back in, you know, I'm thinking the next decade might, we might have like another sort of celebratory sixties. I mean, the young people almost need to go and claim this town, London, where no one's in the center of London. The landlords are demanding this sort of 10 or 20 grand rent a month. It's almost like let the kids go and just have it and see what they do with it. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful. Are you not Uh, climate change with financing opportunities, jobs, are you, how are you with that? I mean, I think, I think it's all going to be upended. I think it'll have to be upended just the, the kind of previous systems of things. And so I, I think that there are a lot of younger kids who are energized and I, I love that. Like we do a lot of anti-racism work in our, in our home, in our community, and we do, you know, climate work in our, in our community. And so I think that there, there's a really kind of energized younger cohort and I, I hope and would love to see them kind of fix all the problems that the older generations just couldn't manage. Mm. So I, I do think there will be a ton of progress and I think there'll be a ton of things that are really wonderful. I just hope we haven't kind of fucked it up, you know, too much for them. Mm. Let's wind it up. Oh, let's ask a couple more silly questions at the end. So what is your favorite sandwich? <laughs> favorite sandwich? Not of um, all time, just at the moment. Mm, what comes to mind? Let's see. Um, I like a good eggplant parm. Eggplant parm. So non-meat. You're not a veggie, mm. are you? Yeah, I, I, I lean veggie. And what sort of bread would that be? And what like sort of a condiments? Sub, a, a sub a kind sub. of. Well, because it's, it's like a, you know, it's like a chicken parm kind of sub. And an eggplant. Is that an aubergine here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Eggplant. I like it. God, when you say it, it sounds so dreadful. Eggplant. Is that what I sound like? <laughs> Is there any other? <laughs> All right. What's a, one last therapy question? What's a surprising thing that people wouldn't realize about being a therapist of cancer patients and people that are dying? Just how much joy there is. I think people would be surprised by that. There's there's a lot of joy and humor, and it's such a serious subject. People can't see how there's space for both, um, but there is. So in conversation, when people ask what you do and you say that, they go, oh, God, how do you deal with that? So does oh, it yeah, does it lead a, a dark trajectory? And you're like, no, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely like, you know, I'm definitely the downer at the party when people ask what I do. And I'll usually just kind of say like, oh, I'm a social worker. <laughs> oh, where do you work? Oh, I work in a hospital. Oh. I'm a cancer therapist, but it's a right laugh. You say it like that. <laughs> yeah, I say it exactly like that. <laughs> Thanks so much. This is my All best right. podcast. Is it? Yeah, perfect guest. Thanks to Amanda. Thank you for listening. If you like, give us a review. Just five stars or say something with your hands and your head. See you next time. Bye.